Is online video killing the TV star? And what does it mean when the debut novel from a YouTube star breaks records and outsells even Harry Potter? This is Episode 9 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asaka. Tom, is online video killing the TV star? This is a piece from Digiday by Kenneth Hine uh, with the title, Online Video is Killing the TV Star. I don't know about you, but if I hear one more <laughs> digital piece titled from the old Buggles song from 20 years ago, I'm just going <laughs> to I'm gonna heave. I don't, I don't know. I've had it. Um, <laughs> here's how it begins. Neon Cat or My Little Pony? Annoying Orange or SpongeBob SquarePants. These are the programming choices facing kids today. The point being they will just as readily consume online video as they will broadcast TV programming. The TV in the living room is, as Mr. Mr. Hine puts it, essentially a glorified monitor. True or false? Well, I mean, it's not just kids and, and it's not killing anything. It's changing it and, mm-hmm. and it's doing it fairly quickly. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, my daughter recently appeared in a music video, right? I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Anyway, so it's Thanksgiving Day. It's My house is full of relatives, and, you know, I'm be, being a proud father. I turn on the television. I think the, uh, the, the dog show or something is on. And I press the HDMI button on my remote. And then on Amazon's Fire TV player, mm-hmm. I search YouTube. I find the video in a couple seconds. And then I play it on my big television, and it was a great experience and mm. ridiculously easy. And it's getting easier all the time. That's right. Yeah, it's getting easier all the time. I think that was my take from this piece. I thought on the, on the surface, I thought this guy just awakened to this conclusion. Um, <laughs> because I, in my opinion is no, online video is not killing the TV star per se. It's just, it's just removing the boundaries between online video and the TV star. Exactly. As we always like to say, content wants to be free, not necessarily free of money, of, of cost, but free of distribution silos, right? That's right. That's right. Now, listen, the author did point something out that I think maybe a lot of people just may not fully appreciate because it's hard to see this picture, this big picture. He wrote in that article that uh, for marketers, uh, it means that Facebook, YouTube, Google, they're not just battling each other for ad dollars. Instead, they're coming after what he called the giant pot of TV advertising revenue. And he wrote that they have every right to do it because the best content will win. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether the content was created in a studio in Los Angeles or a basement. It just has to be entertaining enough that we want to watch it on one of our screens. Now, this is, I think, where people get confused. And, and I know because I used to be confused about this. Mm-hmm. Because people are thinking about, wait a minute, okay, it has to be the best content will win. And they think, well, that's bullshit. The best content is going to come from the professionals. Mm-hmm. And to an extent... They're right. I mean, Hollywood and you know other professionals are going to continue to create unique content that draws far more viewers than any single amateur YouTuber. But here's what's hidden. Hollywood will not create a show that draws more viewers than an aggregation of thousands of YouTubers. Mm-hmm. And that's the advertising game that's, be- that's 
being played right now online. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, in, in fact, um, uh, just recently, Mark Zuckerberg had a Facebook uh, flat out stated, Facebook will be mostly video in five years. I mean, think about that. I know. <laughs> Facebook will be mostly video five years. Now, to your point, the question is, what kind of video are we talking about? Are we talking about your vacation video? Are we talking about, you know, um, how much amateur versus how much professional? Um, another um, uh, example there, Michelle Fan, who's famous uh, on YouTube for her makeup uh, videos, um, launched her book with a video on Facebook. So Facebook actually lured her. So Facebook has already gone, started down the path that Amazon has tread before them and Netflix before them, which is going from amateur to professional, amateur to professional, amateur to professional. And ultimately that transition involves unique uh, custom, uh, uh, original content. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, they all want a chunk and, and a bigger and bigger one of the TV advertising dollars. That's, that's huge, huge money. And look at YouTube right now. I mean, we don't, we don't really see these, these numbers, but they draw, I think, a, around a billion unique visitors mm-hmm. who watch a combined total of more than 6 billion hours of video each month, mm-hmm. right? So you see all of this video, all this viewing, and then these new types of companies start emerging. The, the companies called uh, multi-channel networks, like uh, maker studios. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They go out and they say, okay, how do we aggregate thousands of these digital video channels? And then we'll partner with YouTube and the content creators, and then we'll syndicate it and, and monetize this stuff. And, and this is not hidden. I mean, the big media companies... They, they see this. They know what's going on. They started buying some of these MCNs. I think Disney recently bought Maker. Mm-hmm. So it's not hidden. It's not killing anything. It's changing things. And at the same time, these big media companies are doubling down on their own original content, their own investment in content, their own efforts to create hits so that they have something that rises above the fray so they can invest in both ends of the long tail. Right, that's, Mark. Listen, how many times have you said this? We've said this on the show. Creating long-term success in the media business today is going to come down to two things: content creation and control of the channel. Right. The, if you want to win big, you need both. Like need Netflix both. is trying to do, right, with original programming. Absolutely right. There's one other point in this piece that I thought was interesting, where. He says, given that we are smack in the middle of football season, is it really that hard to imagine Facebook being the next home of the NFL? The way things are going, they're quickly becoming another channel, much like CBS, NBC, or Fox. I think that's half right. I mean, I think it's half right in the sense of, yeah, I absolutely could see Facebook becoming home of the NFL. But thinking about Facebook like, quote unquote, another channel is a, I don't know, an 80-centric view of the media space, isn't it? Listen, it's whoever can pull off these deals, right? Because none of these shows are going to be monetized with purely with advertising dollars. There's going to be all kinds of schemes going on. Product placement, licensing, you know, like you said, I mean, Facebook and, and, and the book deal, right? Right. So whatever they can get fans to buy into and ultimately to buy... Everyone wants to figure out how to get a piece of that and how to control that. So the lesson from this piece is really not that anything is killing anything else, but that the lines between those functional categories, those silos are evaporating. And the sooner everyone understands that, the better, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You cannot stop 
what has been unleashed. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. What does it mean when the debut novel from a YouTube star breaks records and outsells even Harry Potter? Tom, this is from this is from Hello Giggles. Where did you come up with that source, by the way? Hello Giggles. No I'm embarrassed even to say the name of it. <laughs> but the, t- the article is, this 24-year-old author just broke J.K. Rowling's sales record. Uh, the author, quote-unquote, is named Zoella. Uh, she's a YouTube star named Zoella, real name Zoe Sugg. Zoella is much better than Zoe Sugg, by I the way. She's, she's 24. Sugg, who became a viral video star thanks to her beauty and fashion videos on YouTube, just published her first novel, Girl Online. The book flew off the shelves, selling more copies in its first week than any other debut novel in the UK on record. That's right. She eclipsed the first week sales of Harry Potter, and she's not even 25 yet. <laughs> There's so much wrong with that, starting, <laughs> starting with the notion that if you're under 25, you have no right to any sort of success whatsoever. It starts there. The other thing that occurs to me about this that I, I think is interesting is the whole perspective of this article is a publishing-centric perspective. In other words, the point of reference is the best-selling stuff that emerges from the world of publishing, whereas Zoe's point of reference is the best-selling stuff that emerges from an audience of millions of YouTube viewers. Do you see my point? Yeah, exactly. You, and know, I mean, better that, than I do, you know better than I do that the numbers in publishing, even the large numbers, aren't that big, right? No, no. And, and you know what? Uh, publishers have been, have been doing this for the last maybe 15, 20 years, not looking for, 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 for these special works of literature, but looking for people who have audiences in order to write books to appeal to those audiences. I mean, th- this just means that the, the, that the internet, you know, as everybody should know by now, is a very powerful form of communication, but it's perfect for appealing to a particular subculture, mm-hmm. right? A network of like-minded people. And if you do it well, if you t- tap into that subculture's collective psyche and make them feel understood and feel good about themselves, utilizing whatever platforms you want, you know, blogs, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, it doesn't matter. You can build an obsessed, obsessive tribe of people who identify with you, who think they know you, and who will talk about you and share things things about you and purchase your latest whatever it is, YouTube video, cosmetic line, book, movie. There is no big C culture, especially when it comes to the internet. It's fragmented into millions of special interest little C cultures, groups that define who people uniquely are. Yeah, it's interesting. The, 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 the article seems to be uh, surprised at the success of this book because it views it as a book from a, a previously unknown author rather than um, a piece of media designed for an extraordinarily large audience already beholden to the media brand. Even at one point in this article, uh, Zoe says, I love that so many of my viewers are enjoying the book. So many of my viewers. (laughs) (laughs) Look, her YouTube videos, I I look, they get between, uh, you know, like one in seven million views each. She has close to seven million YouTube subscribers. Mm. And she became the fastest-selling debut novelist in the UK since records began by selling, what, 78,000 copies of her book 
in one week. It's a so, trivial number. Right? A little more than 10% of her YouTube subscribers, <laughs> her pre-existing fan base, bought a copy in the first week. It's really amazing. And it, there was an article that I, I shared with you from our friend Seth Godin that kind of alluded to this because he talked about the, the market for books, the market that kind of there's the market of people who hang out in bookstores and libraries and own a lot of books. And there's what he calls the second market. The second market is almost always the market that turn a book into a bestseller. Bestsellers are books that people who don't buy books are buying. <laughs> they are, in Zoe's words, viewers. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, they're, they're people that that you know, somehow have heard about or tapped into a particular celebrity and got turned on by that, feel close to it, what, what, for whatever the reason is. They might feel like an, an insider or something, and they want to they wanna own the thing. You know, it was like when, when, I, when I heard about um, Searching for Sugarman, and I saw the movie, mm-hmm. and, it, you know, and I was like one of the first people to see the movie, and I was telling everyone about the movie. For some reason, I felt compelled to go buy the, so- the soundtrack. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's just a weird thing. It's like, you know, I don't own a lot of CDs anymore, but I felt compelled to go buy that one. Here's Seth's dist- uh, distillation of this, and it's very much along the lines that you just indicated. He says, so consider the trap that the bestseller effect sets. The publisher and author want a bestseller, so they spend a lot of time and money on mass media, storefront promotion, and even writing a book that feels like it will appeal to the second group, the people who are not book buyers. Um, but that's not what the second market wants. They want what they consume, read, listen to, et cetera, is what their peers demand they consume. This is that group of passionate folks you were talking about. Right. They're protective of what they buy and consume because they don't have many slots for new books or new, new music. They don't buy much new music. They don't buy books, which means that if you're trying to reach people who aren't shopping for what you sell, who don't think about what you sell and aren't even in the store for what you sell, you've got a tough road. The way around the trap, it seems, is to obsess about delighting a critical mass of readers in the first group, to create a book and a marketing plan that captures the energy of this group, to let them bring the work to the rest of the market, to, in other words, have that small base of fans that you were talking about, the fans that Zoella has, and to let them do the heavy lifting for her. Yeah. Listen, this isn't an, an age, e- even if a, a lot of books are flying off the shelves that all these micro-celebrities are writing, it doesn't mean it's an age of literature. It's not an age of reading. <laughs> it's an age of celebrity and platforms because celebrity equals audiences and audiences love to spend money on anything associated with celebrities. It's that simple. Yeah, that point was addressed in the uh, a related uh, article that just came out from Time titled Fashion Blogger Zoella Admits She Did Not Write Girl Online on Her Own. Oh, wow. Cue the best, your best Claude Rains Casablanca shock, shocked remark here, right? <laughs> Here's the, one of the quotes from the book. Celebrity writers often work with ghost writers uh, when they publish a memoir or even a novel. The New York Times noted in 2011 how celebrities such as the Kardashians, Snooki, Hilary Duff, all had published novels in part like a branded fragrance or clothing line, the novel, once, qu- once quaintly considered an artistic endeavor sprung from a single creative voice, has become another piece of merchandise stamped with the name of celebrities who often <laughs> pass off the book as their work alone, despite the nearly universal involvement of ghostwriters and the publishing industry has been happy to oblige. It's kind of interesting if you really think about it. I wonder if like a celebrity could 
could have somebody paint paintings for them and say that I've been painting now and start selling those, you know, people would buy them. Listen, this ghostwriting controversy, you know what it's going to do? It's going to increase your sales. Of course it will. This is a great, she could have planted this article herself. And by the way, all indications are that it is helping the sales of the book, not hurting it. Because of course, people in her corner remain in her corner because they're not in her corner because she writes uh, like Charles Dickens, they're in her corner because she's Zoella. That's it. All right. If they, if anyone tries to bully her, they will come out to her rescue and promote the hell out of that book. Exactly right. Because unlike you know the first uh, book from uh, I don't know Dan Brown, um, you don't know Dan Brown. You know Zoella. That's you right. have a relationship with Zoella. You're part of her tribe. You've seen <laughs> hundreds of her videos. Uh, don't you dare tell me my friend is a cheat. Um, because I'm going to stand behind her. The funniest thing about this New York Times quote to me is their kind of the the implicit sneering tone. Oh, of course, because (laughs) these people are all frustrating writers themselves. (laughs) As if no one from the New York Times has ever had one of their books ghostwritten (laughs) And if no, as if no one from the New York Times has ever themselves served as a ghostwriter on anyone else's project, you know there's a long line of New York Times writers who do that. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I'm not a betting man, but here's, what, here's what's going to happen. So her sequel's coming out uh, in the summer. And if I were a betting man, <laughs> I'd bet you movie discussions are already underway. <laughs> And all of her teenage fans will flock to see that movie. That they will do. It's number nine in the young adult category right now, according to the New York Times. And uh, that means those discussions are very much underway. All right. It's time for rants and raves. Tom, what do you have for us this week? Oh, I get to go first again? Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to rant about the public reaction to two very different media stories. Mm. First... And this is this is you know it's not unknown to people, but it was really it was just put out there overtly. Google admitted that advertisers waste their money on more than half of their internet ads. <laughs> they reported that fifty six point one percent of ads served on the internet are never even quote unquote in view, which they define as being on the screen for one second or more. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. So, so I've been waiting for the backlash, you know? I'm waiting for like outrage or a, a plethora of media reports and analysis or a drop in Google and Facebook stock prices. I haven't seen a thing. Mm-hmm. Billions of dollars down the drain that nobody's looking at and not a peep from anyone. So mm-hmm. here's the thing that kills me. What are people getting all bent out of shape over? Simple. The Discovery Channel's two-hour Sunday night special called <laughs> Eaten Alive. So the Discovery, they, they build the show as some pretty spectacular thing. They've got this conservationist and snake expert, Paul Rosalie. He's going to scour the Amazon to find a deadly anaconda. Then he's going to wear a special <laughs> protective suit, pour pig's blood all over himself to attract the snake, and then... He's going to be consumed by the snake for everyone's mm-hmm. viewing pleasure. Mm-hmm. Now, so in essence, we get this pre-taped show that's a publicity stunt to attract viewers and draw attention to the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> but that didn't seem to matter to many people who tuned in who absolutely were pissed off that this guy, Paul, didn't get eaten by a snake. 
<laughs> right? Now listen, in, in, in I should note that Discovery Channel released a statement making it clear that, and I'm going to quote them, it was Paul's absolute intention to be eaten alive. Now, here's a few <laughs> random tweets that came in. Here's one. Well, I fell for it, watched Eaten Alive featuring no eating of a live person by an anaconda as promised. Should stick to watching football. Here's another one. The only thing that anaconda swallowed were the two hours of my life I'll never get back. The so Here's another one. So the snake never eats the guy. What a farce. I'm going to bed. And the funniest one I read was this guy who tweeted, this is why I have trust issues. Now... No, Mark, listen, I don't know what's going on. It seems to me that the world of media is turning into one gigantic country fair. It's overflowing with naive celebrity and spectacle-seeking people. You know, but, but, you know, as someone told me once, it's always been like that, right? P.T. Barnum said uh, a couple hundred years ago, every crowd has a silver lining. Every crowd is a story. I love that. So, so this is a case where the show was in the can. They knew nobody was eaten, and yet uh, this is just way different from that thing twenty years ago when Geraldo went to see what was in uh, that tomb uh, or something. The, the right? safe, the, right? The safe, yeah. Right. And the safe turned out to be full of dust. I mean, that <laughs> at least was on live television at the time, right? This is something that, well, we know it's a letdown, but let's put it out there anyway and deal with the backlash <laughs> later. That's just classic. I love that. All right. I have a rave and a, a rant. I think I'm going to start with the rave. Um, this is from uh, Viacom CEO uh, Philippe uh, Dauman, who um, really had some interesting comments recently about uh, some of the program that he has. Now, Viacom, as you know, is the company that owns Paramount Pictures, MTV, right. Nickelodeon, VH1, BET, Comedy Central, Spike, and a host of other entertainment assets. So he was commenting on the changing proportion of programming from uh, syndicated uh, or acquired to original. And his comment was, while originals are becoming more important, the value of acquired programming for us is diminishing. He told a, a UBS conference recently. So, again, we see this this trend towards the rise of original content and the diminishing importance of content that could live in other places, the importance of kind of originality in that sense. And I was reminded about a story I read recently. I'm reading a book about the relationship between uh, the 20th century uber sensation Harry Houdini and uh, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm. And it talks about the fact that Houdini in his day, because he was so huge, he had literally dozens of copycats. There were people following behind him left and right. Um, and as a result, he patented his act. He would sue people. He would expose people. But what he really did more than anything was out-innovate them by trying to come up with stuff that they hadn't encountered yet because they were just ripping off whatever it was that Houdini was doing. And to give you a sense of that, I want to share with you some of the names of his copycats. They include, among others, a man named Boudini, <laughs> and <laughs> Houdin, <laughs> there was Udini, <laughs> and my favorite, this was Harry's brother, named Hardeen. So there you go. <laughs> Those are just four of the Houdini copycats. So that's the rave. Here's my rant. This goes to last week's uh, live television extravaganza, Peter Pan Live on NBC, which 
you only knew about if you were watching even one second of NBC for the past <laughs> month or so. But as you know, these live uh, shows are increasingly about social media, Tom, right? Right. Have you ever tweeted during uh, a TV show about that show, using the hashtag for that show? No. <laughs> you obviously are on the tip of the spear when it comes to this trend. Well, I've tweeted like during NFL games. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it turns out that a variety of advertisers, a variety of brands are not nearly, <laughs> nearly such the Luddite that you are in this regard. For example, during uh, Peter Pan Live, which got a lot of social media attention, by the way, here's DiGiorno Pizza. I wonder if they called it Neverland after someone ordered delivery pizza and it never came. Oh, Hashtag Peter Pan Live. <laughs> Here's another one from DiGiorno. I wonder if the captain has a pizza cutter attachment for his hook. Hashtag Peter Pan Live. <laughs> Delivery guys are the true lost boys. Hashtag Peter Pan Live. I mean, DiGiorno must have written these all in advance, right? Um, I mean, what what is that doing? Unless you have that DiGiorno in the in the freezer, it's not going to do much for you well, while you're reading that, right? Here's the here's the here's the the capper on this. Also tweeting, there were a bunch of band, brands tweeting and tweeting, including Charmin. And you know, the spokes uh, animal for Charmin is this weird looking blue bear for some reason. Um, but at one point, and here's the reason for my rant. At one point, toilet maker Charmin and pizza maker DiGiorno started tweeting to each other. About the event. <laughs> oh, boy. That's so a he, bad combination right here's there. Here's DiGiorno. Looks like it's time to come up with tweets on the fly. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, my God. Where am I? Hashtag Peter Pan Live. Charmin replies, at DiGiorno Pizza, we were waiting for this. P.S. We're patiently waiting for the booty and poop deck jokes. <laughs> uh, DiGiorno tweets back, patience, my furry friend. Now, you know, since when did an event produced for me becoming an, an event produced for them? Here are two advertisers talking to each other well, listen, <laughs> in the presence of my entertainment. When did it become their entertainment? First of all, Mark, people have been saying for a long time that advertisers are talking to themselves. So they might as well talk to each other. <laughs> By the way, to that end, there are four retweets of this back and forth and nine favorites. That's on a show where millions of people watched and tens or hundreds of thousands uh, of, of, of uh, tweets. So it just goes one. to show you you're quite right. <laughs> All right, that's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes, on Stitcher, at SoundCloud, or at Podcast One. And while you are there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. And that goes for you, DiGiorno. Hmm. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.